All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study in God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Jim's ministry. We're thankful for his work in Kiev and for the fruit that's been born there over the last uh, decade and a half as they have faithfully ministered there. We're thankful for the fruit that's been produced in the school and in the church for the many graduates who have gone out into some into uh, ministry, full-time ministry where they can, and others who are involved in their jobs or careers but faithfully serving you in churches and some in Ukraine and some in other, other countries, Turkey and some other areas, some back in Russia, some in Belarus. And, Father, we just pray that, that you will continue to supply uh, students, that you will continue to raise up uh, men and women who desire to serve you and desire to be trained in the study of your word. We pray, too, for Jim and Phyllis and for their ministry and that you would continue to supply their their needs both uh, physically as well as spiritually. Father, we pray for all of us here this morning as we study your word now that we might be challenged and encouraged by it, that we might come to understand the long-term strategy that you have for our lives as believers, that we are being prepared for something not just related to life today, but for uh, a role in the future kingdom with Christ as well as into eternity, and that we need to think in terms of that long game and not just in terms of today, and that we need to accept the challenge laid down in the scriptures, that we need to be students of your word, we need to be disciples, and that's not just limited to learning your word and learning the facts or the information that's there or recording these things in our notebooks, but internalizing your word, making it a part of our very life, our soul, where our immediate responses to issues in life are the result of what's in your word and not following the the dictates, the inclinations of our sin natures. And, Father, we pray that we might be encouraged and challenged from your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we're going to continue from our lesson a couple of weeks ago, but what I want to do as we begin is to sort of get our thinking back into this passage a little bit, thinking about what Jesus is doing, how he is challenging these these disciples, because the challenge at the end of the chapter is a little bit different from the instructions. The instructions at the beginning focus on a specific mission at a specific time related to a specific people. They are, he is sending out the 12 to only the house of Israel, the house of Judah. They have a message that's related to the gospel of the kingdom at that time. And then he warns them to anticipate persecution and opposition. He tells them that God is going to supply their uh, their needs, that uh, through the Spirit of God they will uh, be given the words to answer their opponents but that as time goes by, this opposition will increase to the point where even close friends and family members will turn them over to be, uh, to be persecuted, to be killed, to be put to death because of their stand, uh, stand in the word. And so he is, as we come to the second part of the chapter, he's giving universal principles that apply across the board in any age to those who are focused on spiritual growth or spiritual life and growing to spiritual uh, spiritual maturity. And in that, he says some things that are, are rather challenging. Many of the things that he says in the last part of the chapter from verse 
uh, verses 28 and following are repeated several times. They're repeated by the Lord in different contexts, and they are recorded in different contexts by other gospel writers. They're not always given in the same context, but these were uh, things that the Lord taught, illustrations that he used uh, several times as he was challenging his disciples to uh, to be disciples, and that's part of our responsibility as well to uh, challenge ourselves to be a disciple. A disciple is not someone who is simply a believer. There are many people who are believers in Jesus Christ for eternal life who never uh, understand anything related to the challenge to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who is a, a committed follower or student of the Lord, uh, someone who is has dedicated their life, committed their life, to growing to spiritual maturity. We often hear people say that uh, in sort of a loose idiom that we have in churches today that we're committing our life to Christ. What does that actually mean? Uh, That's not a phrase really that is, is used specifically in the Scripture. It is the idea that we are committing ourselves to be followers, committing ourselves to being students of the Word, committing ourselves to a task of spiritual growth, going toward spiritual maturity. And that is not easy, and part of the response that often comes our way is opposition. In this age, in the church age, we can face that in various degrees. In the United States, you may not have a lot of opposition, uh, but in some areas, in some parts of this country, especially today, you may face a lot of of opposition. And so as we look at this, we see a warning that Jesus gives as he is, uh, and I'm going back to this passage because it's important to understand context. There's some difficult things that are said uh, in this chapter. Our focus is really on verses um, 32 and 33, but we have to go back and pick up a couple of things in related to context. And Matthew 10, 28 helps us to do this. I, I went through this a little quickly when I covered it two or three weeks ago, and I want to go back and just point out some things because it, it does help us understand the context. Whenever we study a passage in Scripture, especially in the Gospels, we have to ask two questions. Is Jesus talking to unsaved people about how to be saved? Or is he talking about to save people about the responsibilities that are inherent in being a Christian, in being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? And passages that we look at uh, are always addressing one of those two things, either how to become a Christian, how to be justified before God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for our sins. And when we trust in him, immediately God imputes or credits to our account the righteousness of Christ. First example we have of that in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. See, we can't be righteous on our own. Isaiah says that all of our works of righteousness is, our tzedakah, all of our works of righteousness, righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So if ours is never good enough, then how are we going to get it? And what Scripture says in both the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New is that we have to trust in Christ. We're given somebody else's righteousness because we can't do it on our own. Ours are flawed. Ours are never come, come up to speed. So there are passages that talk about how to be saved in terms of justification, but other passages talk about how the saved are to live. That's where we are here because Jesus is talking to his disciples about how they are to live. They're they're already saved. They are disciples. We see this in the first part of the chapter in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. When he called his 12 disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits and the power to uh, cast them out and to heal, and he sent them on a mission. And when we conclude this discourse in chapter 10, and we look at chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, then he departed from there. So this whole section is related to teaching his disciples on the responsibilities and challenges of being a disciple. He's not teaching them about how to become saved. So when we look at passages like Matthew 10, 28, we read, 
And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that's how it's translated. The problem that we have here is in the Greek, it doesn't say hell. Hell is an English word that derives from uh, uh, Norse or, or Viking mythology and doesn't come from, from the Scripture. The actual translation, as I put it in this particular text, is in Gehenna. Gehenna, Gehinom, which means the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. So let's just look at this passage. What Jesus has warned them about is they'll be delivered up to councils and synagogues in verse 17 and to governors and kings in verse 18. And then in verse 21, he says, brother will deliver a brother to death and other family members will deliver you up to death. So the context here is warning that they will be persecuted to the point of death. And now in verse 28, he says, well, don't fear those who threaten you with physical death. And he says, don't kill, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And I've highlighted the word kill in blue because those are the same word in, in the Greek. And it talks about physical death. And then he says, but, so there's a contrast. So there's, don't, don't fear this one uh, category of person who could kill you physically. But on the other hand, this is the one whom you should fear. And that is the one who is able to destroy. Notice I have highlighted it in green because it is a different word in the Greek who can destroy both soul and body in hell or in Gehenna. So we have to ask a couple of questions. What does it mean to destroy someone in Gehenna? And the second question is, what does this mean uh, to destroy as opposed to kill? Why is, does Jesus shift the verbs there? And the, the verbs in blue, the verb for kill is apokateno, which means literally to kill or to take one's life physically. And the other word, apolumi, has the idea of just destroying someone. It's, a, it's used uh, in passages like John 3.16 for, perish, for eternal perishing. But it's also used in numerous other passages for just temporal destruction. So it's a word that, that doesn't necessarily bear the weight of eternal condemnation. In fact, many places it's just talking about some sort of punishment, some sort of temporal punishment or some sort of, of temp, temporal ruin. We really need to start with that idiom of Gehenna to understand the rest of it because we have to answer the question whether or not we're talking about eternity in the lake of fire or we're talking about some sort of temporal punishment. And these are the two options. Does Gehenna refer to the lake of fire? That's what the word hell uh, conjures up for us in English is that Jesus is threatening them with eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Now, we have a problem with that because he's talking to his disciples. Uh, with the exception of Judas, they are all believers. And so he's talking to believers. So why would he be threatening them with the lake of fire? So the other option is that Gehenna describes a form of temporal punishment or divine discipline or divine judgment in time rather than eternity. He's talking to them that if you as a believer are disobedient, then God is going to judge you. He's going to bring divine discipline into your life. So that's the other option. Now, if Gehenna refers to the lake of fire, if this refers to the lake of fire, then that would indicate that either A, Jesus is indicating that his disciples who are saved at this point could lose their salvation. Theologically, that's known as Arminianism, and that doesn't stack up to what the Scripture says. The Scripture teaches eternal security that once we trust in Christ as Savior, if we believe in him, then we are saved eternally because of all that God does for us at the instant of salvation. The other option that often comes up here is that G, if, if Gehenna refers to the lake of fire is that failure to persevere in the face of opposition or persecution would mean that these disciples are not truly believers. They've just sort of deceived themselves into thinking they are. And the real sign of being a, 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 um, a disciple is perseverance, not faith in Christ. And that's usually referred to as lordship Calvinism, lordship theology. And that's the idea that the only way you know you're saved is if you live like it. And if you don't live like it, then you 
probably deceived yourself with the, and you have the wrong kind of faith. But that's not biblical at all. The Bible says that we're saved because we trust in Christ, and the way we know we're saved is because we have believed the promise of God to trust in Christ as Savior and that instantly we're saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't introduce works into salvation either on the front end that you're saved by works or the back end that you know you're saved by your works. Works have nothing to do with justification. They are something that related to our spiritual growth, but not related to our sanctification. So, as I pointed out, Matthew 11.1 1 indicates that Jesus is talking to his disciples as believers, not as unbelievers. So let's understand this idiom. We've gone through this before, and I just want to hit the high points. Gehenna, uh, from the uh, noun gath hinom indicates the valley of Gehenna. Now, this is a map of Jerusalem, the, the old city as it was at the time of Jesus. Uh, Jerusalem is split by three valleys. The north-south valley here on the right is the, val- is the Kidron Valley. The valley cutting across to the south of Jerusalem here, you can't read the uh, label, but that's the Hinnom Valley. And then there's a third valley uh, labeled here the Central Valley that cuts down through the center of the old city. That's also known as the Tarapian Valley or the Valley of the Cheesemakers, and you don't really see that in Jerusalem today because that's all been filled in, uh, in in the city. But the valley we're talking about is this valley to the south, the Hinnom Valley, and this has quite a, a significance in the Old Testament. And that's where we have to go to understand the idiom. As I've said many, many times, the way to understand a lot of words and a lot of idioms and a lot of concepts in the Old Testament, I mean, in the New Testament, is to trace them back to how they were originally used and understood in the Old Testament. How would a Jewish audience at the time of Jesus understand what he was saying? He's basing this on what was said or how words were used in the, in the Old Testament. So the Valley of Hinnom was a horrible idiom, or an idiom that had a horrible connotation. It was where the southern kingdom of Judah had sinned by committing child sacrifice and burning their sons and daughters in the fires of Molech. Molech was a, one of the gods of the, of the Moabites and of the Canaanites, and the way to worship him was that you built this huge fire, and his belly is pictured in the illustration on the slide, and then you would... Uh, burn your infant children in the fires of Molech. And so this symbolized for Judah a place of their greatest spiritual defeat. It symbolized their disobedience to God, the fact that they had uh, broken the first two commandments and they had succumbed to idolatry and they had created an image of God. And so that, that it becomes an idiom of their spiritual failure and their disobedience to God. We know in Second Chronicles uh, 28.3 that Ahaz uh, was guilty of burning incense and burning his children in the fires of Molech. In Jeremiah 7.31, we're told that they built the high places of Tophet in the valley of the son of Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. How horrible that would be. And this was something that they thought was wonderful and something that they were very much given over to, and God condemned them for that. And the second point is that because of these sins of idolatry, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, was uh, punished in Gehenna in 586 B.C. This was a historical punishment that it didn't, have, it, it didn't have an eternal connotation. God said that they would be destroyed in the very same valley where they destroyed their sons and their daughters. Passages like Jeremiah 19.6 identify the valley of the son of Hinnom with a place that would be later called the valley of slaughter. And in Jeremiah 7.32, we're told that this valley of slaughter, that they would be the people of Jerusalem would be destroyed and slaughtered by their enemies, and that was where they would be buried. They would be buried in Tophet, in the Valley of Hinnom, until there's no room. Now that was historically fulfilled in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar 
conquered and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple. And so the Valley of Enom is, first of all, the place of their greatest sin, and secondly, it's the place where God brought divine discipline and judgment upon uh, the nation for their sin. So it's not a that the, the imagery, the picture, the historical reality doesn't relate to eternal punishment. It related to God's discipline for disobedience in our life today. So in terms of a conclusion, the Valley of Hinnom was never used in the Old Testament as a reference to eternal condemnation. It's not used as an analogy to the eternal lake of fire, but it's a place of divine discipline for a disobedient nation because of their failure to follow God's word. So Gehenna became an idiom for special, I mean, for spiritual failure, for condemnation, shame, and divine discipline in time. When Jesus uses this, it's a Jewish metaphor that invokes a memory of Israel's spiritual failure and God's judgment to warn believers of the very real dangers of divine discipline in time and the loss of rewards and shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So when Jesus uses this phrase in Matthew 10:28, he's using it in this sense of temporal judgment. He says, on the one hand, don't be so fearful of the person who threatens your life that you disobey God because God is the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that word, uh, destroy, or the phrase soul and body is a, is a phrase we often think of in that, Jesus, that, that God or the Scripture is talking about the components of a human being. But here, that doesn't really fit the context. What Jesus is saying is if you're fearful of a person who can kill you physically, you need to recognize that God in divine discipline can wreck your life. He can destroy your life. The word there for destroy is an eternal condemnation. It's judgment. And this morning when we were reading in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, caught my attention that at the end of reading about the judgment seat of Christ, where the focus is upon how God is going to evaluate us on the basis of our works and on the basis of rewards, he, he then says that God is going to bring uh, judgment on that person's life. He says um, in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss. You'll suffer loss of reward, but you won't lose salvation. The passage says he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And then in verse 17, he says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, see, that's your body, that's your spiritual life. And defiling it has the idea of bringing harm to your spiritual life. And you do that, and I do that, through disobedience and carnality. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will, what? Destroy him. If anyone, def and it's the same word. So if, and, and there's the, the same idea, is that if you defile God, your, I mean defile your body, then God is going to bring harsh judgment in your life, both in time and at the judgment seat of Christ. You won't lose your salvation, but you will lose uh, happiness. You'll lose value in life, meaning in life. God will wreck you as a consequence of your your disobedience, and, and the sa same with me. So this is what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about rewards. He's not talking about how to get into heaven. Then we look at Matthew 10, 29 to 31. This reminds his hearers that God was fully aware of what suffering they would go through, and he would take that into account. And just as it would be impossible for us to number our, the hairs of our head, so it's impossible for us to understand all the details as to why God allows us to go through suffering. So as we go into the next two verses, in verses 32 and 33, we have to go back to understand the basics. that we, we, The Bible talks about salvation in these three senses, these three tenses. Phase one, we're saved by faith alone. We're saved from the penalty of sin, which is uh, spiritual death, by trusting in Christ as Savior. That happens in an instant. Then, after that, 
we have a new life. We have a spiritual life, and it's our responsibility to feed, to nourish that spiritual life through the Word of God that we can grow. That's First Peter chapter two, verse uh, verse two, and that we are now to be saved from the power of sin. And then when we die physically, we're absent from the body, we're face to face with the Lord, and only then are we saved from the presence of sin. Now, we have to make these distinctions. Jesus is not talking in this passage about phase one. He's talking about phase two. And this is the point in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Here we read Jesus saying, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, you read that at first glance, it's like, well, if you accept Jesus, that's confessing him before men, then you're going to go to heaven. And if you deny him, then he'll deny you and you won't have eternal life. But let's slow down just a minute. Why would he be threatening his disciples again with the loss of salvation? We're not talking about phase one. Nothing in the passage is talking about how to get saved. It's talking about how a saved person should live. So what does this mean that Jesus confesses us before God or Jesus will deny us before God the Father? Now, just as we did last time, I want to remind you of the context here a little bit. In Matthew 10, 40 to 42, Jesus talks about reward. There are, actually, I didn't highlight the one usage here in 1041, but there's there's one, two, three times here in this passage that Jesus is talking about rewards. Remember, the last time I pointed out the difference between salvation and reward. Salvation is free, but rewards are earned. Salvation is for a few. The rewards are for a few. Salvation is based on faith alone, but rewards are based on what we do in terms of works. Works means obedience and application of God's word. So in Matthew 10, 32 to 33, again, the context is going to be about rewards, not about getting into heaven. Okay, it's focused on what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. So we have these two words, or two pairs of words. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now that word for confess is the Greek word homologeo, a word we refer to frequently when we talk about 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. In contexts that have a legal overtone, these, this word usually refers to the admission or acknowledgement of guilt, that you have done something wrong. But in other places that are not technically related to, to a legal context, confession before God of sin is a legal context, it also has the idea of praise. So we could translate this, therefore, whoever praises me before men, him I will also praise before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So deny here means to refuse to acknowledge a relationship with, with someone. So again, a reminder that salvation is a free gift, but rewards are earned, and we have several passages that talk about this. For example, uh, Revelation 22.12, Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation, in the conclusion, it's an encouragement to believers to press on no matter what the opposition may be, as Revelation focuses a lot on the opposition and persecution during the tribulation period. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. This isn't about getting saved. This is about how we live as a saved person. Second John 1 John 1.8 says the same thing. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. These passages are not talking about getting into heaven, uh, getting justified. They're talking about our position once we are there as a result of our evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, a great passage to help us understand this confession and denial uh, terminology in, in Matthew 10, uh, 32 and 33 is found in Revelation 3, 4, and 5. 
Revelation 3, 4, and 5. So turn with me in your Bible to Revelation uh, chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And we will look at this in terms of just understanding a few things about the context. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have these seven letters, postcards. These are evaluation reports on the seven different congregations. Now, they are each addressed to the angel of the church, and when we went through Revelation a while back, I spent a lot of time talking about what the angel was, that this is a term for a uh, for the pastor. I mean, not the pastor, excuse me. This is a term for an angel who is the watcher, the evaluator of that particular congregation. The word angelos is always used of an angel. It's never used of a pastor. And so this is writing to the angel who functions as sort of like a court bailiff or court reporter who is recording the behavior of this local congregation. And he is the record keeper that will bring these records before the judgment seat of Christ when it occurs. And so the the angel is being given this information related to uh, the evaluation of this congregation. So each one of these reports gives the positive things and the negative things in each congregation. There are two that have no positive things, and there are two that have no no negative things. And so this is the record. It's a like a report card you received when you were probably in elementary school. Uh, in, in growing up in HISD, we would be given on one page our various uh, subject matters, uh, arithmetic and English and uh, other th- geography and history, and we received an A through F grade there. But then on other, the other side, there were character qualities, and we would be rated there in terms of a check plus or, or, or minus. And this is like that. Or we get, do you have a check plus or minus in terms of these various, various character qualities? And so this is written to the recording angel of the church. Now the term church is a term that refers to a group of believers, a body of believers. While in any body of believers, any assembly, a church on a Sunday morning, there may be one or two unbelievers there. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a member of the church. And by church, I mean the body of Christ. That is, anyone who trusts in Christ as Savior at that instant, they are adopted into God's royal family and become a member of the body of Christ, the church universal. And you cannot be a true member of of a church unless you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fact that these are addressed uh, in relation to churches, tells us that the assumption is that that the the evaluation report relates to the believers in the congregation, not the unbelievers, because the unbelievers don't need to follow the uh, the, the the commandments of the related to these reports, because they're not saved. They need to become saved. They need to trust in Christ. These evaluation reports are telling believers how they need to straighten up, or what they're doing right. Uh, they are not addressed to unbelievers. If they were, they would be telling them how they need to be saved or justified. So we know that he's writing each of these reports uh, to a group of believers uh, that make up this local church. And so by definition, he's addressing believers and talking about believers. Second thing we note is that if that if they were... Uh, uh, that that there are two types of people that are mentioned here. There are two types of pe- people that are mentioned here because if we look at verse 4, we, we read, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Okay, so that tells us there's one group that hasn't defiled their garments, whatever that means. We'll talk about that in a second. And you have another group that has, the larger group has defiled their garments. So since he's talking to a group of believers, that means that there's two types of believers, those who are defiled and those who are not defiled. The ones who are defiled are the ones who are living in disobedience, living in rebellion against God. Uh, the word defiled that is used here is a word that is used in relation to also to ritual purity. So in the Old Testament, the, count, the Hebrew counterpart of this term would have applied to those who were 
uh, ritually defiled and needed to bring a sacrifice to be ritually cleansed to come into the presence of God. What we're talking about here is believers who are ritually uh, defiled, who are, excuse me, spiritually defiled because of sin in their life. And they need to get right with God and walk in obedience. So you have two different types of of believers that are mentioned here, those who are uh, defiled and the vast majority that have uh, not been defiled. So again, it indicates that they are are believers. In verse 2, we see that the correction, um, actually the problem is stated in verse 1, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, some people look at that and say, see, they think they're spiritually alive, they think they're saved, but they're dead. But but let me suggest that that is not uh, the way to understand this. They are dead. There are different kinds of death in Scripture. One kind of death is physical death. The second kind of death is spiritual death. When we're spiritually dead, we're unsaved, and we do not have eternal life. A third kind of death is that we are in carnal death. We're not walking with the Lord. We're walking like an unbeliever. We're walking according to the sin nature. Those who are in carnal death are saved, but they're living like a spiritually dead person. And that's that's what we have here because the writer is writing to them as believers. He talks about them as believers. He says the solution to their problem of death here is not faith in Christ. That would, If they, he was talking about spiritual death, he would say, I, I know that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead, so you need to trust in Christ. But that's not what he says. He says, I know that you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. So see, he's talking to believers that are out of fellowship and say, you need to basically saying, you need to get right with God. You need to walk by the spirit and you need to strengthen what remains because even though you've made a lot of mistakes, God's grace will still forgive you and you can still move forward in your spiritual life. And then he goes on to say in the second part of verse 2, for I have not found your works perfect before God. And that word for perfect is the word from the word group teleos in the in the Greek, which has to do with being complete. So he's saying, I have not found your works complete before God. You are incomplete in your obedience. You're incomplete in your spiritual growth. And so you need to correct yourself. You need to walk with God, you need to confess your sin, get back in fellowship, walk by the Holy Spirit, abide in Christ, and grow towards spiritual uh, spiritual maturity. And so he says then in verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard. That word received is a word that is also used in, in various places to refer to accepting Christ as Savior. So he's saying, remember how you received. Remember that you've already trusted Christ as Savior. Okay, so it's very clear that he is talking to them as believers, but they are, the majority of them are those who have defiled uh, their garments. They are spiritually unclean. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's just the starting point in terms of recovery. So when we look at verse 4, when we look at verse 4, it says, but you have a few names, that's a few individuals, even in Sardis, as bad as you are, who have not defiled their garments. Now, the garment would is a metaphor for their possession of righteousness. Okay, we all possess righteousness because Christ died on the cross for our sins. So the, the possession of the garments indicates that they're, again, that they are believers. But some have defiled their garment because they have committed sin. So there needs to be recovery. And so... There are those who have not defiled their garments and they are walking as cleansed believers living in fellowship with God. And he's, uh, John says, you've not defiled, uh, they've not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now walking with me in white is not something that would necessarily be true of every believer. Obviously there's a distinction. 
the ones who aren't defiled would not be walking in white. So that indicates some special category of reward for those who have not defiled their garments. And they are further described, I mean, the reason for this is further described is they are worthy. The others are unworthy because they lived a disobedient life as, as believers. Now when we look at Matthew 10, 37 to 39, the middle of the passage that we're talking about, we haven't looked at this section yet, but we will next time. Jesus uses the word worthy three times. Just as in this same section, he uses the word reward three times. Rewards are related to worthiness. And here he says, he who loves father or mother, mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now we'll talk about what that means later on. I'm simply pointing out that the passage we're studying in Matthew 10, 28 down through 33, is talking about rewards, and rewards are related, uh, related to worthiness. So the fact that Jesus here in Re- Revelation 3 in their evaluation report talks about those who will walk with him in white because they are worthy indicates, again, a category of reward. And then in verse 5 he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now this is something different from positional righteousness or imputed righteousness. This has to do with a category of reward because it's related to those who overcome. Now some people think that the overcomer is overcoming is related to every believer, but the word overcoming is used in John 16 by the Lord to refer to to the world. He said before he went to the cross he said, I have, and it's a perfect tense verb, which means completed action. He's already completed this. It's finished before he ever went to the cross and dealt with sin. So that means it's not related to justification phase one. It must be related to phase two, to spiritual life. He said, I have already overcome the world. And in First John, John talks about the same thing, that believers who are overcomers overcome the world. They don't overcome sin. Overcoming sin or dealing with sin, the word overcome is never related to sin. That's what happens when we trust in Christ. We recognize our sins paid for, we trust in him, and we're given eternal life. After we're given eternal life, now we have to overcome the world. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 12, 2, not to be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is something that occurs after salvation. So the concept of overcoming is something that some believers do, but not all believers do it. Not all believers grow to spiritual maturity. Not all believers are are serious about being disciples. Not all believers really want to pursue spiritual maturity. That's the challenge for us. We don't want to be failures at the judgment seat of Christ. We don't want to be those that come under divine judgment in this life because we have failed to step to the plate and accept the challenge to grow to spiritual maturity. We want to be among those overcomers. That means we need to be disciples who are committed to internalizing the Word of God so that we can grow to spiritual maturity. So we read, he who overcomes, that is, the believer who is uh, a winner who is a, is victorious in his spiritual growth shall be clothed in white garments. That's part of his reward. And then Jesus says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. See, a lot of people want to take that as an indication that you can lose salvation. But this is a figure of speech that is really emphasizing the positive. It's not talking about the negative at all. It's what's called a litotes. I mentioned that the last time, and you probably remember it now, but you won't remember it tomorrow. It is a form of understatement. We use it all the time, and it's we use it when we state a negative or use a negative to state a positive. You praise someone for doing well, and you say, you know, that wasn't bad. See, we're saying it wasn't bad. We really meant that that was good. We meant just the opposite. Uh, you might uh, lessen the impact of some friend of yours who does some, that isn't able to accomplish something, and you may say, well, you're just not as young as you used to be. What you really mean is you're getting old. Uh, we might say uh, that um, uh, somebody's no rocket scientist. And what we mean is he's 
not real bright. Speaking of bright, we might say he's not the brightest bulb in the bunch. What we mean is he's not too smart. He's, he's dumb. He's not very focused or bright. So we use latotes all the time. The Bible does as well. Here are some examples. In Isaiah 55, 11, we read God speaking. He says, so shall my word not return to me void. What he's saying is my word will return full. Does it mean it can or possibly could return void? No. He's emphasizing the positive. It won't return void. It will return full. Jeremiah 30, verse 19, God says, I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. They shall not diminish is a way of saying they will expand. They will be, be numerous. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. In other words, they shall be magnified, or they will be multiplied. They will be large. Does it mean that they could be small? Not at all. You're just stating a positive by stating it in a negative way. In Jeremiah 7.31, a passage we quoted earlier in relation to the uh, Gehenna problem, God says that they worship the idols which I did not command a negative way of saying, which I prohibited. So, when you look at Revelation 3.5, when we read, I will not blot out his name, what this is really saying is not, not only will his name be there, but it will be praised. Okay? That's what the emphasis is. Not only will his name be there, but that, that and not be removed, but it's permanent, doesn't imply that it could ever be removed. It is emphasizing its presence, but it's really emphasizing the fact that it will be honored and praised. And so what what the Lord is saying is that the judgment seat of Christ, if you are an obedient, victorious believer, then you will be praised before God for your obedience at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is also seen in a parallel passage that for some is difficult to understand in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. There Paul says, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. That's the positive promise. If we deny him, he will deny us. There's that same term. Now, does that mean we lose salvation? Not at all. That's what the last line corrects. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, faithless is different from denying him. Faith, if we are faithless, excuse me, faithless is parallel to denying him. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. See, the point at the end there is even if we're a failure as a believer, he won't reject us. He will be true to his word, faithful to his word. So if we expand that translation a little bit, he's saying, for if, this is a first-class condition in Greek, this assumes the reality of the premise. If we died with him as believers, we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant of salvation. That's Romans 6, 3 through 5. If we died with him, and we did when we trusted in him, we shall live with him. That's an absolute Rock-solid promise. We have eternal security. Second, if we endure. Now, this is talking about your spiritual life. If you endure, if you persevere in the midst of opposition or persecution, then we shall also reign with him. That's rewards. That's something in addition to eternal life in heaven. If we deny him, he will also deny us. He will deny us rewards. He will deny us praise at the judgment seat of Christ. But as we read in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 12 and following, there are those whose all their works will be burned up, but they will enter heaven, yet it's through fire. They are denied rewards, but not salvation. That's the last part. If we are faithless, that is, in terms of being a believer, we're faithless in our spiritual life, he remains faithful. He is true to his promise to save us if we trust in him because he cannot deny himself. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine if we're going to go to heaven, but to evaluate our spiritual life to see what our role and responsibility will be in the kingdom. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, for his works. See, that's not talking about justification because that's by faith alone, not by works. We'll be recompensed for our deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There is accountability for our spiritual growth. 1 Peter 1.17, Peter says, And if you call on the Father who, without partiality, judges according to each one's work. This is not talking about whether or not you're going to get into heaven because all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. We're saved by grace through faith and not of works. So this is talking about rewards for obedience. He will judge according to each one's worth. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. That's the issue. We're not to fear the one who can kill the body, but we are to fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul. So we need to be aware that that just becoming a believer is not the end result. It's just the beginning. We have a new life in Christ. And with that comes a new responsibility to nourish that life and to grow and mature in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that when the Lord appears, we will not be ashamed at his coming, but we will be prepared so that we can stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear that praise, well done, good and faithful servant, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, reflect upon this passage and to be reminded that as we walk with you, that that through God the Holy Spirit, uh, we grow towards spiritual maturity, and we, as we obey you, and we will be rewarded for that work that is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that if we ignore you, that if we deny you in this life, and that we do not learn your word, internalize it, and grow to spiritual maturity, then we will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Not our salvation, but we will not hear words of praise, and we will be denied a role, denied responsibility in the kingdom. We will be there, but we will not have what we could have had if we had availed ourselves of the opportunities in this life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. The issue for you is not works. It's not obedience. The issue is trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation believing in him, realizing that nothing that we can do can ever measure up to your absolute perfection, that in your grace you provided a solution to that, you provided a way whereby we can have perfect righteousness, and it's not based on what we do, it's not based on our works, but on Christ's work on the cross. He died as that lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died to pay the penalty for our sins so that by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. You give us eternal life. You give us his righteousness so that it's not based on our righteousness but his, that we're declared justified and we're given new life in him that we may have joy and happiness and that we may have an eternal destiny with you in heaven. And, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone here who's unsure or uncertain of that eternal destiny. Father, challenge us with what we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.